Welcome back. It's week 38 for the week of September 18th through September 24th. We are reading through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Thanks for being with us again uh, this week. We are this week reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 all the way through 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And so we are uh, walking through um, these letters of the Thessalonians this week, wrapping those up before next week, beginning the next letter of First Timothy. So we've talked last week about um, these Thessalonian letters. Remember, they're some of the earliest letters we have, um, some neglected letters as well. In some ways, they're letters we forget about. And remember, Paul is writing to these persecuted believers in Thessalonica. He's writing to them and, and reminding them of the truth of what they have to look forward to and what they have to wait for, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he's comforting them, reminding them of these truths um, so that they can now um, be strengthened and live their lives for Christ and as believers in Christ in the present evil age. So he uh, calls them to uh, you know, live a life pleasing to God. He talks about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord here at the latter part of 1 Thessalonians. And in particular, in verse chapter uh, 5, of 1 Thessalonians, um, he says this at the very end. He says, in beginning of verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So, I want to continue reading here uh, with uh, you, with the help of Horatius Bonar, has some uh, wonderful things here um, from First uh, Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians that we can uh, learn and think about, um, and I, I hope you'll find it helpful too. Uh, first of all, I want to do is this thing, verse fourteen. He says there, right, to encourage the faint-hearted. That's what Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica. Uh, Horatius Bonar has this section called Mr. Feeble-Minded Comfort, Mr. Feeble-Mind Comforted. Um, so let's think about what this means and, uh, and what Paul is writing here. He says this, the word feeble-minded is taken like many other of Paul's peculiar expressions from the Old Testament in which it has several shades of meaning, all of them more or less bearing on weakness, fearfulness, depression, and trouble of spirit. Let me note a few of these. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, Numbers 21.4. Faint yet pursuing, Judges 8.4. His soul was grieved for the miseries of Israel, Judges 10.16. He says strange that this word should be applied to God, but see Genesis 6.6. His soul was vexed unto death, Judges 16.16. My spirit was overwhelmed, Psalm 77, verse 3. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, fear not, Isaiah 35, verse 4. 
The Lord hath called thee as a woman grieved in spirit, Isaiah 54, 6. To revive the spirit of the humble, Isaiah 57, 15. He fainted and wished in himself to die, Jonah 4, 8. The people shall weary themselves for very vanity, Habakkuk 2, 13. Thus the word expresses everything that can come under the word feeble-minded from whatever cause arising. Fear, unbelief, doubt, sorrow, vexation, opposition from without, so that it is not possible for anyone to say, mine is a peculiar feeble-mindedness, mine is a sinful feeble-mindedness, mine is a deep-seated feeble-mindedness. I dare not hope to be comforted under it or to be delivered from it. The Holy Spirit says, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. The apostle, in choosing a word connected with so many various scenes and characters in Old Testament history, evidently meant to comprehend them all, and wishes us to understand that every state of mind which that word can be supposed to describe is included in the exhortation, comfort the feeble-minded. What weak and fearful heart is there which that word excludes? Who amongst us is weak and fearful? Here is a message to him from the divine comforter. Do not puzzle yourselves by the inquiry as to whether your feeble-mindedness is of the right kind and springs from a right source. Take the word as you find it. Are you feeble-minded? To you is the word of this strength and comfort sent. This is only one out of many passages intended for the same class and containing words of cheer and sympathy, words which express God's tender pity and gracious condescension to the feeblest and sinfulest. Let us note a few of these. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Lift up the hands which hang dozen and the feeble knees. Hebrews 12, 12. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. Isaiah 42, 3. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Isaiah 40, 29. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. Isaiah 41, 27. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Luke 4, 18. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. Ezekiel thirty four sixteen. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. Isaiah 42. The feeble-minded form a very large class and hence so much is spoken to them by way of cheer. They are to be found everywhere. They are the fearers and the doubters, the dark and troubled ones, they in whom perplexity and uncertainty prevail, who are all their lifetime subject to bondage. Among them are many single-minded Christians whose faces are Zion-ward, but whose steps are feeble and whose eyes are dim, who are in sore bondage and uncertainty, in whom unbelief prevails sadly over faith and keeps them bowed down and weary. There are some who would treat these feeble-minded ones as unbelievers and speak to them the words of harsh rebuke. Not so the Lord. His hardest words are, O ye of little faith, wherefore did ye doubt? He is very pitiful and of tender mercy. He is touched with the feeling of their infirmities. He yearns over them, has long patience with them, bearing all things and never failing in his loving kindness. He has not a harsh word for them, not an unkind look, though he seems long in hearing their cries. He deals with them more gently than the gentlest of earthly friends. 
For wise ends, he does not all at once bring them into light. He lets them know also that their unrest is the fruit of their sin and unbelief. But still he watches over them and cares for them and leads them by a way that they knew not. Bunyan seems to have sympathized deeply with these sorrowful ones and to have entered into the mind of the master regarding them. They form comparatively the most numerous characters in the pilgrim's progress. There is Mr. Little Faith, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Fearing, Mr. Ready to Halt, Mr. Despondency, and his daughter, Much Afraid. There is surely no one of the class we are speaking of that is not met by one of these characters. These are mirrors in which many amongst ourselves may see their own faces. The words of comfort which Bunyan writes down for these are very precious, but it is the deep and tender interest which he seems to have taken in them that touches the heart and ministers consolation. He shows the spirit of his master, the affection of the good shepherd, the love of a father to a sick and weakly child. Bunyan seems never to have forgotten the gracious and sympathizing words, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. First of all, God's care for the feeble-minded. He is the Almighty, the Lord God omniscient, yet he despises not the weak. He overlooks not the weakest, but his tender mercies are over them, and he heareth the cry of the destitute. He healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. Especially is all this true of Jesus, who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who knows, who knows what a breezed re, bruised reed is, and what the smoking flax, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. No man, no minister, no friend, no parent is half so tender and pitiful as he his very strength but makes him more pitiful to the weak. How gently does he deal with the feeble-minded? Secondly, the church's care for the feeble-minded. It is to the church at large that the apostle speaks, comfort the feeble-minded. He expects his saints to be sons of consolation, true children of Barnabas. When one member suffers, let all suffer. When one is weak, let all be weak. Care for the troubled and the tempted, the weak and dark and faint. God careth for them. They that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Thirdly, the use of the feeble-minded. What purpose do they serve? Many purposes. To show that the righteous are scarcely saved, saved with difficulty. That the spiritual state, even of true saints, is sometimes very low. That our help is not in ourselves. Man's helplessness and God's almightiness are thus made manifest. In these feeble ones, God gets an opportunity of displaying his resources. Fourthly, the consolation for them. Words of grace and cheer innumerable has God spoken to them. While he says to us, comfort the feeble-minded, he comforts them himself. He does so by his gospel, by his providences, by his spirit, the comforter. He sustains and strengthens them. He tells them of his love, of the grace of Christ, of the propitiation on the cross, of the fullness of the mediator, of the peace through the blood, of the living water, of the freeness of all blessing, of the simple way of obtaining it by the acceptance of his testimony regarding Jesus Christ, his son. Well, I think that was a very uh, helpful and interesting thing. We often don't think often about uh, this idea of comforting the feeble-minded, and maybe some of you uh, listening um, find yourself in this passage of those who need encouraged. Maybe you are amongst the feeble-minded. Maybe you do struggle with unbelief. Uh, maybe... Uh, and Maybe you're uh, afraid often or uh, doubting, whatever it is. God cares for the feeble-minded. And we as a church should be a place 
for the feeble-minded to not break uh, the reed and to, to not to snuff out the smoking flax. We should care for those uh, who are weak in our midst and love them uh, because God loves them and he comforts them. And, uh, and, and so it's a great reminder, I think, through this of that important truth and call that we have as church. Okay, next we turn to 2 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.5, um, because Paul now writes another letter to them, right? And in chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So this is a section called the coming kingdom. He's going to talk about the kingdom of God. And this, is, again, is from Horatio, Horatius Bonar. He writes this, We are kings and priests unto God, Revelation 1, 6. The exercise of this royalty and priesthood is not yet. It will come in due time. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And the song which the redeemed sing above is, We shall reign on the earth. It is an everlasting kingdom, 2 Peter 1, 11. It is a heavenly kingdom, 2 Timothy 4.18. It is a kingdom which cannot be moved, Hebrews 12.28. It is called the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 8.28. The kingdom of Christ, Ephesians 5.5. The kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 15.50. This last name is the most frequent. There is a kingdom for us, not for angels, but for the sons of men. It is truly what its name implies, a region ruled over by a king and filled with subjects, happy, holy subjects, governed by laws, good and blessed laws. It is here called the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, because originated by him, set up and ruled over by him. Elsewhere, it is called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Christ. It is a kingdom to which we are invited, invited by him who is its king and lawgiver, God himself. He has revealed to us its nature and proclaimed the law of entrance and exclusion. For no man may make what he please of this kingdom. No man may enter it in his own way or take possession of it at his own pleasure. The law of entrance is very explicit. Except a man be born again, he cannot see it. It is of less moment that we should know the locality than that we should know its nature and entrance gate. A right knowledge of these lies at the root of all true religion, and mistakes on these points are fatal. It is a perilous thing not to know the king or the kingdom or the way of entrance, the warrant for taking possession of it as our own. Let us gather from the second of our texts, first, what this kingdom is not, and secondly, what it is, and let this solemn warning sound in the ears of all who name Christ's name. The kingdom is not meat and drink, or put it this way, heaven is not meat and drink, or put it this way, religion is not meat and drink. Take it in any or in all of these forms or senses, it enunciates the same searching truth and touchingly rebukes the materialistic religions of our day. First of all, what it is not. Of course, one might enumerate a hundred things which it is not, but let us take those directly suggested by our text. It is not forms. There must be forms in this kingdom, but the forms do not constitute the kingdom. Under Judaism, there were many rites, sacrifices, there was the Passover, but these did not make the kingdom. He is not a Jew that is one outwardly. The kingdom is not meat and drink. So with us, there are sacraments, prayers, worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the weekly Sabbath and gathering, but these are not the kingdom. All these may exist, and yet men may be far from it. Secondly, it is not moralities. There must be these, and yet these are not the kingdom. Without them, the kingdom cannot be won, yet they are not the entrance. 
A man may have the gate shut against him, though presenting himself clothed with all the moralities that ever distinguished humanity. So it was with him who came to the Lord, saying, All these things have I kept from my youth up. He went away sorrowful. It was not the kingdom for him. Thirdly, it is not carnalities. The theory of a large school in our day is that we are to enjoy the world and its pleasures as much as may be, and that this is real religion, that thus we honor God by enjoying his world. But this is worldliness, not religion. It is not the kingdom, nor does it resemble it or fit us for it. No doubt whether we eat or drink, we are to do all to his glory. But the mere physical or carnal enjoyments of the world have nothing to do with that glory. Self-denial, not self-indulgence. Flesh crucifying, not flesh enjoying, is the law of that kingdom now. Yes, nothing outward, nothing in the flesh, nothing, nothing of external display, nothing that feeds self. None of these is the kingdom, or can give us a title to it, or prepare us for it. The body can never be the soul, nor the dress the man, nor the word the deed. Externalism is not the kingdom. What it is, God's kingdom has to do with the inner, not the outer man, with the soul, not the body. Everything connected with the kingdom and the king is spiritual and real and true and holy. The words do not imply that the kingdom is not a real kingdom and that its dwellers are not real men, but that its laws, its service, its employments, its enjoyments are spiritual and divine. It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. First of all, it is a righteous kingdom. Its kingdom is the righteous one. Its laws are righteous. Its employments are righteous. The kingdom into it, it is by the righteousness of the righteous one. All in it and about it is righteousness. Only the righteous enter and dwell there, nothing that defileth. It is a peaceful kingdom. There peace dwells. Dispeace has been banished from every heart. It is the kingdom of the reconciled, of men who have found him who is our peace. No variance, no estrangement, no wrath, no trouble yonder. It is a joyful kingdom. Everything about it is joy, not gloom, nor sorrow, nor darkness. We belong to it. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope, if we have joy in God and are partakers of what Christ calls my joy, there are songs of joy. Every being in it is full of joy. Its king is anointed with the oil of gladness. All this is in and through the Holy Ghost. He makes the kingdom what it is, and its dwellers what they are, righteous, peaceful, joyful. It is he who imparts reality, spirituality, truth, holiness to that kingdom. No spirit, no kingdom. Ye speak of being heirs of the kingdom. Have you received the Holy Ghost? Of this kingdom we are to walk worthy and to be counted worthy, that is, meet for, as it is said, meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. Worthy of the kingdom of God. What an expression! Yes, worthy of God and of his kingdom, such are we to be even here. Such is to be our life on earth, a life of holiness and self-denial and devotedness to that God in whose kingdom we are kings, a life of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Yet though our life here is to be a life worthy of or corresponding to the holy nature of that kingdom, still our right of entrance and possession does not depend on any such worthiness. That right comes from and through another. Another's grace and another's worthiness give us the introduction into that kingdom. It is absolutely and entirely on the ground of what Christ is, not of what we are, that we enter in. 
His excellency comes in the place of our unfitness. So soon as we accept the father's testimony to that excellency and consent to be treated on the ground of it alone, a growing fitness for that glory and a growing likeness to its inheritors is unspeakably blessed and desirable. Nay, to this we are called, yet that fitness has nothing to do with our right. The fitness is one thing and the right is another. Live inter... I'm trying to figure out what he says here. Live into the kingdom as does a little child who has had no time nor opportunity to acquire fitness, but gets in on the ground of another's doings. We enter the kingdom as did the thief upon the cross, who all his life long had done nothing but evil and seemed wholly unfit to possess a kingdom into which nothing that defileth shall enter. Oh, blessed freeness, freeness absolute and unconditional, freeness which makes no exceptions but receives all who come, freeness which does not suspend itself upon one good thought or feeling or wish on our part of any kind whatsoever but throws wide open the everlasting gate that the chief of sinners may enter in freer than the air which we inhale freer than the sunlight freer than the rain of heaven is this access into the kingdom of god the father beseeches the savior invites the spirit calls good angels beckon Christ ministers entreat, and the one dear sound which they make to echo through earth and to pierce the wanderer's ears is, enter in. All is free. All is ready. All is for you. Well, that again, you can see again that free nature emphasizing that Bonar does there. He's emphasizing that we enter this kingdom not because of anything we have done, Now, we want to live and to be worthy of the kingdom, but we don't get to enter it because of anything we've done, but because of what somebody else did for us. And so we receive the testimony. We believe these things, and we are freely welcomed into God's presence, into his kingdom, and become one of his subjects because of what Christ has done for us. Well, lastly here today, I want to read another section um, from uh, Horatius Bonar. This is taken from 2 Thessalonians 2.2. Paul writes here about the man of lawlessness. He says, uh, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a le- spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the ab- effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Um, so he talks about here how God has sent them uh, this delusion so that they may believe a lie. Um, and so... I'm trying to find it, honestly. I found this in my, um, uh, it's listed here for this cause. God shall send them a strong delusion so that they should believe uh, a lie. Um, he does talk about them having, oh, here we go. It's actually verse 11. I don't know why it was that way on my piece of paper. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Um, And then he also is pulling from 2 Corinthians, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So this closing section we'll read here from Horatius Bonar is called The Believed Lie and the Hidden Gospel. He writes this, the warnings to the Thessalonians concerning the perils of the last days in this second chapter are very awful. 
These are appalling words. The mystery of iniquity, the working of Satan, lying wonders, deceivableness of unrighteousness, strong delusion, believing a lie, all damned who believe not the truth. They are written specially for our days. And we see or rather feel these terrible delusions gathering round us more and more subtly every day, deceiving, if it were possible, the very elect. Every lie is evil, but the lie of the last days is the most evil of all. All unbelief is more or less the unbelief of a lie, but the unbelief of the last days will be the belief of Satan's darkest and subtlest lie, the lie of Antichrist. It is against this that the apostle warns the Thessalonians. But apart from the believed lie, there is a hidden gospel, and it is of this that the apostle speaks so solemnly to the Corinthians in connection with his own ministry. A hidden gospel, lost souls, the God of this world, the blinded eyes, all these are unspeakably terrible. There is such a thing as a hidden gospel and a lost soul. A hidden gospel, what does that mean? Not an imperfect gospel, not an obscure or mystified gospel, not a false gospel, not another gospel as he speaks elsewhere. No, but our gospel, my gospel, and Timothy's, the gospel of all my fellow workers. It is Paul's gospel, Christ's gospel. The true gospel is said to be hidden. There is something fearful in these simple words, a hidden gospel, an eclipsed sun, a dried up well. These are but poor emblems of a hidden gospel. For if it be hidden, then one, the way to heaven is lost. Two, peace is gone. Three, life is gone. Four, hope is gone. Five, the anchor of the soul is destroyed. Take away or hide the gospel, and what is there for a man to take refuge in? Hide the gospel, and you shut the gates of heaven. You fill the earth with gloom. You make life not worth having, death terrible, and eternity a region of unmitigated despair. Hide the gospel and you may close the Bible, shut your churches and say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But who hides the gospel? Not God. He has sent it, exhibited it, lighted it up. He does not hide the sun from earth. Not Christ. He has come a light into the world and his object is to show himself, not to hide himself. Not the Holy Spirit. His office is to glorify Christ and to unfold the gospel. He certainly draws no veil over the face of Christ, but unveils him, reveals him. Not the good angels. They desire to look into these things themselves and to see others also searching them. They would not, even if they could, hide the gospel of Christ. Five, not ministers. They are set for the preaching, not the hiding of it. They do indeed at times obscure it, teach it imperfectly. But it is not of this that the apostle is speaking, but of the hiding of the pure gospel from the eye, so that, though preached, it produces no effect. Who then hides it? The sinner himself. He shuts his eye. He closes his lattice against the light. He sets the world between him and the gospel. He refuses to receive it. He buries it out of sight. He treats it as the Jews treated Christ. He hates it, turns away from it, prefers other light and another gospel. The God of this world. Satan is the great obscurer of the gospel. He tries to keep the Son of Righteousness in perpetual eclipse by keeping his world between him and the sinner. He blinds the minds of them that believe not. He keeps out the light of the knowledge of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus then the sinner and Satan combine to hide the gospel. Not the sinner without Satan, nor Satan without the sinner, but both cooperating, and both because they hate the gospel and its light. 
and him especially who is its son. This kind of hiding can only occur when where the gospel is pure gospel is preached. There are other kinds of hiding with false or defective gospels, but the special awfulness of the present case is that it occurs in connection with Paul's gospel. It is this gospel that is hidden, and the hiding of it is eternal darkness and ruin. How perilous the position of the hearers of a pure gospel. Sometimes these congratulate themselves on their privileges and seem to think themselves all right because their minister preaches a pure gospel. Oh, that may perhaps be their ruin. It is in such a congregation that Satan works so terribly and so peculiarly, entering into confederacy with the sinner to shut out the light. So he did in the days of the prophets, so that they said, Who hath believed our report? He did so in the days of Christ himself, so that he said, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. When the light is at its brightest, the deepest darkness is found. O sorrowful issue of a preached preached Christ! Deeper darkness, stronger delusion, more obdurate blindness, more resolute unbelief, and a more woeful eternity. Slight not the good news, O man! They may seem to you just now to be nothing. They will soon be all. Take the divine testimony to the great propitiation on the cross. There is salvation in the simple reception of that testimony. Don't get into the metaphysical labyrinths or theological puzzles about the nature of faith. The thing to believe is that with, with, with which the sinner has to do. Is it true or is it not? Your reception of it as a true thing, as the very truth of God, is what God demands of you. Could he ask less? Do you need more? That true thing which he bids you believe contains eternal life. That is the end of Horatius Bonar there. And that's going to be the end of our time in in Thessalonians as you're going to read chapter 3 as well. Um, And thinking again, sobering words about um, God sends them a strong delusion to hide the gospel. They hide the gospel. It's the sinners that hide it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and Satan does also. And so it's our our job as the church to uh, boldly, uh, proclaim, but also to cling to and embrace this gospel, to know Jesus Christ, to know God the Father, to live in communion with the Holy Spirit, that we would be uh, lovers of Jesus Christ, that we would make sure that we are speaking of him to our children and to our neighbors, and also that we uh, proclaim this truth to the church, to the world at large, and uh, to those who don't know it. Thank you for uh, listening to this. Next week, we will be continuing into uh, 1 Timothy, uh, week 39. And so please keep reading. Take care and God bless.